1: Look, I understand. It is a confusing world out there. Many voices clamoring and uh, competing for your allegiance and your attention. Well, I want to make it very clear I don't uh, pretend to uh, tell you what to think. I'm not competing so that I can have sway over your mind or your thoughts. But I'm going to encourage you that uh, now's a really good time to think as clearly and independently as you possibly can. In fact, I would go so far as to suggest this is the highest duty of citizenship during times of crisis. And I think we can safely agree we're we're living in times of crisis. So come find courage. Come find camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers. Got a great show ahead of us today. And we're going to be taking a very close look at uh, the, the currently breaking down COVID narrative. There's a lot of good news out there, even at the same time that there's a lot of instability and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, power grabbing going on. I'm confident, though, that we can uh, come to a reasonable solution for ourselves. In fact, I want to share something with you. This crossed my Twitter feed yesterday. Um, Just absolutely love T.K. Coleman from the Foundation for Economic Education. And I think this may, this may be the best advice. This is why I'm giving you this right up front. If you hear nothing else from the show today, this is something you ought to consider. T.K. Coleman posted a, a, a quote from St. Peter of Alcantara. And the quote says, Truly, matters in the world are in a bad state. But if you and I begin to reform ourselves, a really good beginning will have been made. And TK underscores this by saying, never underestimate your ability to mitigate the madness out there by doing the inner work of putting your own soul in order. So even as we talk about some of the things that are going on around us, uh, this this is the thing that we need to keep in mind. There's a lot over which we don't have control. That's okay. You're going to find a lot of peace in your life when you reach the point you can just let that go and and uh, and move on with your life. But really... The greatest source for peace that I have found in the last couple of years has been turning my focus away from whatever the chattering class is saying, you know, about, you know, how you better double or triple mask and you better get a vaccine or you're a bad person. And, you know, all the attendant conflict that has come with this. I find peace when I'm actively working on getting my own heart rectified, getting my own mind in order. And. Simply loving the people who are in my circle of influence. I know it seems trite. Probably seems too too good to be true, right? That's too simple. We need a complicated solution. Oh, well, stand by. Government will be along momentarily to give you a very complicated solution. That's what they do. They take things that are simple and they complicate them. But if things are in a bad state generally in the world, and I think most reasonable people would say, yeah, they're... They're definitely not getting better over time. If you focus on reforming yourself, you are undeniably making a difference. You are offering the world an improvement from its current position. Never forget that. Okay? Hopefully that's encouraging. Hopefully that gives you just a little little sense of hope. Um in fact, I wanted to there was another thing I wanted to share here and this is uh Brandon is is uh, a listener in St. George who just I love his insights, and, and I wanted to share this with you. This was an email I got from him, challenge accepted. He said, I heard that someone made a comment to Elon Musk about his money, or about how his money, or at least a portion of it, could end world hunger. And Musk responded that if an, if an actual model was presented to him proving that his money would end world hunger, he would sell his stock and donate the money. Now, Brandon points out here, his money's not what's keeping a portion of the Earth's population hungry. What may be the reason why so many are hungry is our lack of faith in understanding the miracle of the loaves and fishes. Now, this was a miracle, and by definition, it's something which is true that cannot be explained. Yet it happened, and it was recorded, but for what purpose? So he says, every day we as a world succeed in getting by for another day. The model supporting the success of our existence gets proven every day. Now, what if we take that working model and desire to change one thing, that thing being world hunger? We don't need extra money to do this. The formula is simple. A portion of the world ends their day satiated, let's say more than 50%. And a portion ends their day still hungry, less than 50%. So... We'll use a model of 50-50 just to show that in that case it would still work. He says, if each day those who had loaves and fishes divided that which they had and gave to those who had not, wouldn't the entire world end the day at least half full? Yes, Brandon says. The answer is yes. Day one, nobody's starving. They've all been fed at least 50% more than they had yesterday. And as for those who gave their 50%, well, God performs miracles when we let him take part in our lives. So he says, if it's economically feasible to send shoes all the way around the world to those who have plenty, then how is it not possible to freeze dry our food that's extra and would otherwise go to waste, or, or that which we choose to give to those who don't have enough? Now, I'm sharing this with you, not only because I think Brandon makes a lot of sense here, but also because that uh, that concept of, of breaking out of this, this skull-sized prison really starts with learning to care about the people around you, to notice the people around you. Now, we just came through the Christmas holidays, so that this is a time of year when a lot of people's defenses are a little bit lower, and it's easier, you know, to feel good about, Ah, oh, you see that homeless person? Well, I gave him a $20 bill, and I feel really great about it. And that's good. I'm not discouraging or trying to downplay it as, yeah, 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 you know, spirit of the season. But I am going to suggest that, If that was the kind of attitude we carried with us, not just at Christmas time, but all through the year, we'd be a lot less focused on, oh, poor me, things didn't go as I had planned and everything is so hard. There's just something about serving other people that uh, I don't know why, but it seems to be the key to lifting you out of the doldrums. I'm not talking about clinical depression or anything like that. So I'm not trying to be an armchair psychologist here. I'm just observing from real world experience. Every time I have felt as if I were being crushed by whatever the weight of whatever challenges I was facing at that moment. The surefire way to snap me out of that funk or to to get me to a place where at least I feel like I've got breathing room. My, My head is above the surface of the water. I'm not, you know, just breaking the surface to take a gasp and start slipping beneath it again. It always came when I focused on trying to help someone else instead of just being, you know, focused on myself. Now, that probably sounds, you know, hey, isn't that just the opposite of what you said? Work on fixing yourself first. Well, let's make a distinction service to others and i mean real charitable service to other people is a part of fixing and improving yourself it's a part of getting your soul in order i'm sorry this is sounding more like a sunday school lesson than i really intended to but the bottom line is yes it's it's a crazy world there's there's a lot that's going wrong right now Some of it by design. In other words, people are trying to make things as difficult as possible. And sometimes it's just, you know, the the entropy that results as, as we move along through the universe and things start to fall apart. But there's always that little degree of control that you and I have in how we choose to react to all the stuff that's outside of us. And when you can get your mind around that, my friend, you are a free individual. You recognize you're not a puppet on the end of someone else's strings. Now, I don't mean to sound derogatory when I say this, but that's something a lot of people haven't figured out yet. The lady who, you know, freaked out on the guy and spit in his face and slapped him on a flight because this man wasn't wearing a mask to her satisfaction. Those aren't the actions of a person who is in control of her life or in control of herself. I think we all feel this to some degree, you know, depending on our situation. All I know is, look, peace can be tough to come by. It's in short supply. And of course, uh, with inflation, it's, it's tougher to purchase as well. I don't know if you can't purchase it. If you want to be at peace, start by getting your own life, your own heart in order. And if you want to feel better right away, Take a look around you. You know, really look around you and see the people around you who need some kind of help. Okay, this is time of year when there's a lot of snow falling. Um, I can't tell you how many people I have seen who, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but they will go out there if they have a snowblower, they have a, an ATV with a snowplow plate, sometimes, blade, or sometimes they have a full-size, you know, snowplow. They go out there and they clear snow and they make life easier for other people. Hold the door for someone. Buy a candy bar for your favorite convenience store clerk. These little things add up, and they put you in a much
0: more positive state of mind. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout
1: out here to my sponsors Monticello College.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAMO.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, and Govern Your Income.com. There's a link to every one of these businesses in today's show notes, which you'll find at the Brian Hyde Show.com. So let's dive in. There's a uh, There's a lot going on right now, and the last 21 months or so have been intense, to put it mildly. One of the lessons that I have picked up on over that time is that uh, anyone who questions what the people in power are telling us, whether it's science incarnate, you know, Dr. Fauci, if you're questioning him, well, conventional wisdom says that you should be shunned by responsible members of society. Well, I'm here to tell you that... uh, I'm grateful for the people who are, are questioning the uh, people in power and questioning what is being not just asked of us, but demanded of us. James Bovard has been covering Washington, D.C. for a very long time. I love his writing because he is not consumed with the partisan aspects of, well, because the Democrats did it, this must be bad. And because the Republicans did it, it must be good. He's right down the middle. I have no idea what his his affiliation is politically, but... He's very good at seeing and calling out all the political mischief that is going on. I've got an article from him about COVID and corrupt federal statistics. I know we all have that burden of who do I trust? Who can I believe when it comes to, you know, the the statistics on COVID? And it's not just the hardcore left-wing liberals that are, you know, getting their information exclusively from the CDC or, you know, from from other uh, sources that seem to favor whatever the government is telling us to do. So here's what James Bovard has to say. He says, federal agencies don't count what politicians don't want to know. President Biden and other Democrats continuously invoke science and data to sanctify all their COVID-19 mandates and policies. But the same shenanigans and willful omissions have characterized COVID data. Now, during his update on his winter COVID campaign on Tuesday, President Biden declared almost everyone who has died from COVID-19 in the past many months has been unvaccinated. Now, that was true from the start of the pandemic in early 2020 until the vaccine's efficacy began failing badly in recent months. Oregon officially classifies roughly a quarter of its COVID fatalities since August as vaccine breakthrough deaths. In Illinois, roughly 30% of COVID fatalities have occurred among fully vaccinated individuals. According to the Vermont Department of Health, half of the COVID deaths in August were breakthrough cases. Almost three-quarters of them in September were as well, according to Burlington, Vermont TV station, WCAX. Now, Bovard says the, the Biden administration guaranteed that the vast majority of breakthrough infections would not be counted when the Centers for Disease Control in May ceased keeping track of breakthrough infections unless they resulted in hospitalization or death pretty smart move on their part right ignoring that data permitted biden to go on cnn back in july and make the ludic- ludicrously false assertion you're not going to get covid if you have these vaccinations but federal data on fully vaxed covid fatalities is far flimsier and less reliable than the numbers compiled by some states honestly recognizing the limits of vaccines could be fatal to Biden's push for compulsory vaccinations. And he's right, that narrative is falling apart right in front of our eyes at this moment. James Bovard says the same policymakers who claim to be guided by data have little or no idea how many Americans have been hit by COVID. According to the CDC, there have been five or make that fifty-one million one hundred fifteen thousand three hundred four COVID cases in America. But a different CDC webpage estimates that there had been 146.6 million covid infections in october in the us rather as of october 2nd of 2021 now that cdc analysis estimated that only one in four covid infections have been reported which would mean that based on the latest official case numbers more than 200 million americans have contracted covid Now, for Biden and his fellow policymakers, a potential error of 150 million COVID infections is close enough for government work. Relying on the lower numbers convenient for policymakers who want to continue ignoring the natural immunity acquired by 199 million Americans who survived COVID infections. He says deceptive federal COVID data is not an anomaly. That same charade or the same charades permeate the official data guiding both domestic and foreign policies. For example, federal education policy has perennially been exempt from the fraud penalties that the Federal Trade Commission inflicts on private corporations. The No Child Left Behind Act, passed in 2002, promised that federal mandates would make all students proficient in reading and math by the year 2014. Almost half the states responded to the law's perverse incentives by dumbing down academic standards, lowering passing scores on tests to avoid harsh federal sanctions. And he says it was obvious within the first year that the law was backfiring, but the feds covered up the catastrophe to permit President George W. Bush and other politicians to continue lying about saving America's children. He says food stamps have been one of the most popular ways for politicians to prove their love of downtrodden Americans. Liberals perennially claim that the food stamp program has a fraud rate of only 1%, but that's based solely on the number of violators who get caught. And federal rules discourage states which administer the program from vigorously pursuing violators. New Mexico Human Services Secretary Sedone Square complained in 2013 the biggest fraud issue in her state was recipients selling their food stamp food stamp electronic benefits, or EBT cards, and claiming they were lost or stolen. stolen rather. Roughly 70% of all the EBT cards issued in New Mexico in 2012 were replacement cards. Squire told Albuquerque's KOB television, We know there are some people who lose them four, six, or eight times, and it's pretty suspicious, but you can't do anything about it based on the federal rules. They want people to have the cards. They want the cards replaced. He says the Peace Corps is one of the most sainted federal agencies, also guilty of perennially covering up deadly risks to its recruits. Peace Corps has long acted as if its volunteers' good intentions are body armor that shield them against all perils. But its basic model, sending inexperienced young college graduates to live and work alone in many of the world's most dangerous nations, is failing mightily. The Peace Corps routinely buries evidence of rapes suffered by its volunteers. Michael O'Neill, the Peace Corps' security director from 1995 to 2002, commented, Nobody wanted to talk about security for volunteers because it suppresses the recruitment numbers. After a 29-year-old volunteer was gang-raped in Bangladesh, Representative Ted Poe condemned the agency's reaction, saying for political reasons, the Peace Corps did everything it could to ignore and cover up the dastardly deed blaming the crime on the victim. And a 2021 USA Today investigation found that the agency continues suppressing evidence even though almost half of the female Peace Corps recruits who finished service in 2019 were sexually assaulted in some way. But this horrendous failure rarely shows up in the agency's endless press release victory proclamations. So, since the the start of the COVID-19 pandemic... James Bovard writes, the the media has portrayed federal officials like Tony Fauci as America's best and brightest. But he says, Washington is also full of towers of paternalist babble built on statistical quicksand. He says, bureaucracies conspire against admitting their failures. And politicians often rig reporting requirements to hide the damage their laws inflict. So anyone who has blind faith in federal data is unfit to judge public policy in the real world. So says James Bovard, and I've got a link to his article in the show notes. I know this is a real point of contention. I've, I've had some very serious discussions with family members and, you know, who've said, you know, well, I want to trust the data and I think that people are trying to do their best for us. Hey, I'm sure there are some people who are. But when there's power involved, I would count on politicians to always do what is in favor of them maintaining
0: that power. Not looking out for my best interests. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Thanks
1: again for taking a chance and at least listening. To, to this message, which is based in personal freedom, freedom of conscience, God given rights, limited government, free markets, private property rights, etc. Look, all I'm trying to do is just, I'm just trying to brainwash people into thinking for themselves and hopefully make the world a freer place in the process. Is that too much to ask? Okay, for some it may be. By the way, I've got some great sponsors who help me do what I do on a daily basis. One of them is lifesavingfood.com. This is food storage. I've been a big proponent of this for years and years and uh, my radio listeners have, have heard me talk about uh, this for a long long time. I still think it's it's, you know, it's not a panic response. Hey, everybody the sky is falling, go get your food storage. It's more of a lifestyle in which you do everything you can during times of plenty to bolster your position for times when it's not so plenty or when there's scarcity or there's uncertainty or even crisis. And it doesn't have to be something on a national scale. It doesn't have to be a worldwide pandemic. It could be the loss of a job. It could be an uh, unexpected illness, car problems, you know, whatever it may be. That food storage is there to sustain you and allow you to Have that degree of autonomy and the ability to stand on your own feet. To that end, lifesavingfood.com is there to take care of you. For my listeners, you'll get a 15% discount, no sales tax, and free delivery. Just click on the link that I've provided in the show notes and go nuts. So in the spirit of self-reliance, it's a great time of year to be stocking up on things that you'll be needing throughout the year as well as for next year. And I've got a great article here from Daisy Luther, who is the uh, organic prepper. And this is what to buy at after Christmas sales. Now, my wife clued in on this a long time ago. I'm just starting to catch on. But this is what Daisy says. She says it's over. For many, waving goodbye to visitors and cleaning up the tattered gift wrap is a relief. The stress is over. So is the pressure to spend money on frivolous items. But she says, if you have room in your budget, now is the best time to save money for next Christmas. Because there are bargains to be had. And listen to this list of of things that are being closed out right now. She says, after the holidays, there are lots of items that go on sale, which you could add to your stockpiles or save for the following Christmas. So here's one of the obvious ones. Gift wrap. Right now is the time to buy it at a huge discount. Save the Christmassy stuff for next year, but be on the lookout for wrapping paper that works for non-seasonal gift giving, right? There's birthdays and anniversaries and so forth, weddings coming up throughout the year, solid colors, shiny multicolored foil, stripes and polka dots, checks and plaids, all work well for wrapping presents throughout the year. Then there's paper goods. She says, we always stock up on things like Kleenex, paper towels, napkins, paper plates, disposable flatware, and plastic cups. These things are very handy during a short-term power outage when washing dishes might be a problem. And she says we don't worry about the festive designs. A tissue is a tissue is a tissue. Here's another good one. Greeting cards. Daisy Luther writes, I know many frugal folks make their own greeting cards or just skip them altogether, but some of us, myself included, just love mailing cards to the people we care about who live far away. She says I've picked up some gorgeous cards just after Christmas that aren't overly Christmassy. I found some with winter scenes and blank inside. Some that say winter wishes, which would be good for several more months. A beautiful set with sheet music on the front and a quote about the music inside. Some that say missing you right now. The point is shop carefully. You may find some that work for you as an all-purpose greeting. You can also pick up next year's batch of cards on a dime. How about bags of bows? If you enjoy wrapping presents and topping them with a perky bow... Daisy says this is the time to pick up a year's supply again at a fraction of the price of the price do you have a gift closet she says this is the time to stock up on gift sets it can save you an absolute fortune over the course of the year she says after christmas i go to the area where the gift baskets are marked down and pick up beautifully boxed candles bath products kitchen items food and other items i keep these put away for occasions when i need to give a gift Sometimes I repackage the items in a way that look less Christmassy. Also, if you're looking for Christmas decorations, if you buy your Christmas trees and ornaments after Christmas, you get them for pennies on the dollar. I don't want to sound like somebody who's, you know, skimping out on Christmas here, but this is something that uh, Becky and I did a few years ago. Uh we we had had an artificial tree that we'd had for years and years, and we decided, you know what? It's time to do You know, a real Christmas tree. So we went and bought a Christmas tree, and within, you know, like a week, all the needles were off, and it was just, it was a disaster. But that year, we went to the after Christmas sales, and I don't remember where we found it, but somebody was closing out a beautiful pre-lit Christmas tree. And again, you can just, you can get it for a song. Timing, it's the timing that matters here. You can get winter decor items, uh, wintry plaid blankets or sweater-knit pillows purchased right after Christmas at very deep discounts. How about this? Candles. Gift items like scented candles often go on sale after Christmas, as well as unscented tea lights. Daisy Luther says, I get nearly all my candles for the entire year during the last week of December. Here's another handy one. Maybe this is handy to me because we're going through a pretty good cold snap right now. Winter clothes. You need mittens, coats, and hats. Post-Christmas is the best time to get them. Retailers mark down all sorts of cold weather attire to move it after the holidays, so look for cozy pajamas and slippers and heavy socks with non-slip bottoms as well. You can also find games, puzzles, and toys. These are often dramatically reduced after the holidays. Hang on to them for birthdays or even for next Christmas. And then stocking stuffers. Lots of things that are sold as stocking stuffers are the perfect size for travel or to supply your guest room. She says, when my kids were little, I used to buy inexpensive little games and toys to keep in the trunk of the car just in case boredom set in and we needed some kind of new distraction on a long road trip. You can stock up on stationery. You can find greeting cards on sale, winter-themed paper, notepads, journals, pens, and pencils all on sale. And this, uh, the guys are going to love this one. You won't have to go stand in Michaels with your wife looking like a bump on a log, you know, and out of place. Stock up on your craft supplies now. Don't be put off by the holiday colors if you have kids. Daisy says stock up on craft supplies after Christmas when they go on sale. And don't forget, Valentine's Day and St. Patrick's Day aren't that far away, so, you know, the things that are red and green can still be put to good use. You may also be able to find crafting kits for adults like cross-stitch supplies and yarn. She also says don't forget the food Lots of manufacturers package candies, crackers, and cookies with a holiday theme. Now, those red and green candies will be just as tasty in addition to cookies as standard M&Ms. And you can find things like cookies, desserts, holiday-themed dessert mixes, candy, uh, turkey, ham, stuffing mix, cranberries and cranberry sauce, canned goods like green beans, pumpkin, pineapple, and sweet potatoes, french-fried onions, citrus fruit, butter, frozen appetizers, eggnog. I don't know why. We're all sold out of eggnog around here. Trust me, I've been looking. But she says you can also check the deli for markdown party platters full of meat, cheeses, fruits, and veggies. You can also find holiday-themed goods like Ziploc bags or disposable food containers that they use over and over again, cellophane bags, uh, uh, aluminum foil, plastic wrap. Bottom line is... All that holiday stuff that the stores set out, you know, to entice us to come and shop there during the holiday season, they're moving it out. Right? Valentine's Day is coming. They'll be moving in new stuff. The cycle continues, but what a great time to stock up on these things. And there's probably stuff that she didn't mention. She says, please feel free to to share any ideas of what else you might find as you shop those after-holiday sales. Now, again, I'm just, I'm one of those people who I get a little bit giddy when I find something that's like, hey, that's a good buy, and we could use that. The paper goods one really speaks to me just because, well, I get tired of washing dishes. (laughs) Sorry, but I know, I'm probably the only one out there who doesn't find great joy in, you know, washing and rinsing dishes and putting them in the dishwasher. Some people have to actually do them by hand. and Thankfully, it's not quite that bad, but um, yeah, paper plates are just a, they're a really nice, if not environmentally friendly, way to uh, take care of a need and uh, and to move on. So, some great advice there. Again, there's a link to the article. When we come back, we're going to talk about one of the sweetest sounds in the world. I'm talking about the sound of children at play. It's funny. I actually, uh, got a I got a, an email from a listener up in uh, Idaho who. <laughs> Uh, does not find the same joy in hearing children at play, and that's and that's okay. He says, you know, I think I've earned, you know, my time for peace and quiet. I don't want kids running all around. I don't want them making messes, you know. And um, I get that. Maybe, uh, maybe I will be at that point at some point when you know I, I want the kids to just be quiet so I can enjoy. But hey, no fun allowed. Okay, maybe it's not that bad. But I've got a great article here from Lenore Scanese. and you know that joyous sound of kids playing. That's also the sound of children learning. Wait till you hear what they learn during playtime.
0: We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I don't know if you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, but uh, it's been pretty impressive to see the number of people coming to states like Utah, Idaho, and other states through the Intermountain West. I don't know all the reasons, but I have a strong suspicion that there are a lot of people who are coming to these states because they recognize that these are some of the few remaining islands of freedom left in the world. Are they perfect? No, I wouldn't suggest that these are perfect states, but I certainly understand why people are trying to get here. And if you are one of those people, you probably have recognized, wow, the real estate market reflects this. This is the hottest real estate market most of us have ever seen. I'm uh, telling you this because if you are in the process of shopping for a home and you are anywhere within the great state of Utah, you should talk to my friends at the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. You can call Heather at 703-4522. That's area code 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, simply go to 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Look, you can count on her decades of experience in the lending industry and, and get getting you the loan you need quickly. Because time really is of the essence. Homes don't sit on the market for days and weeks. They uh, go very quickly. So you've got to have your ducks in a row. Heather's there to make that happen. All right, let's talk about kids at play. I mean, it's I. I think back sometimes and I think, you know, that's one of the things I truly do miss is that innocence of just Being able to just play and just, you know, use up that time. And some people would think, well, that's wasted time. There's serious things going on. These kids, they need to learn responsibility. They need to learn how to pull their own weight. Okay, that'll come. You should hear what Lenore Skenazy is saying about what kids learn when they're just playing. Saw this article on intellectualtakeout.org. Lenore Skenazy says, we're heading into two weeks or possibly two months or two years of the kids at home. It's Christmas break, as if it's a break from learning. But she says, that's just our Puritan work ethic talking. The idea that if something is fun, it's a pause from our real job, which is to always be hard at work on something tough, unpleasant, or boring. Ooh, she's right. That, that sounds about right. But she says, we sure are hard on ourselves and on our kids. So try this little thought experiment. She says, think back on the time you spent just playing as a child and ask yourself, did you get anything out of it? Now, that's a fair question. Psychologists and pediatricians say it's in free play, in other words, play that isn't for a coach or a trophy, play where the kids come up with something to do and then do it without an adult helping or directing them. It's during these times that kids learn things like Cooperation, creativity, communication, leadership, empathy, how to read someone, how to get buy-in, frustration tolerance, self-control, focus, and fun. In fact, she says, play is so fun that kids will work on these critically important skills, the self-control, focus, etc., just so they can have fun. Because building those skills is a means to an end. Lenore Skenazy says it's as if Mother Nature installed the play drive for the same reason she installed that other drive, the drive to reproduce. Both are critical for the species to continue. In fact, play makes you into the kind of person someone would want to reproduce with. Now, without play, well, she says, left turn here, think of Yellowstone National Park for a second. About a 100 years ago, park rangers killed off all of Yellowstone's gray wolves because they were preying on the cattle allowed to graze there. But without the wolves, the elk and deer populations exploded and the entire ecosystem collapsed. Plants and animals, even bugs, were dying off. Scientists finally figured out that gray wolves are a keystone species. In other words, without them, the entire system falls apart. Well, she says, play is the keystone species of childhood. Without enough of it, kids get anxious, they get out of shape, depressed, lonely, bored, desperate, and dumb. Or at least less clever. But she says, in play, minds have to be always on, nimble. Think of how much planning, adapting, and self-control goes into a simple game of hide-and-seek. It's like a master class in strategic thinking. So the takeaway here is play is not the opposite of learning. It's learning all the stuff you need to succeed. Christmas break is a break from schoolwork that's a glorious chance for kids to catch up on these other lessons, even when it looks like they're bickering. That's part of the process. It's an unpleasant part, yes, but part of the process. So she says, grab an eggnog and go to another room or maybe another house or another state so the kids can play without you. Just leave some cardboard boxes. The bigger, the better. Consider it homework. Now that may strike some as well. That's a very irresponsible kind of attitude. by just leaving the kids on their own? Don't you know they need this guidance and tutelage at every step? I think she's on to something, though. But then again, you know as, as the as the person who has uh, coined that phrase uh, "free range ch- free range children," you know I think she uh, is on to something that. We have, have lost one of the things that uh, Lenore Scinasy pointed out to me, and I found that I was very guilty of was that uh, trade of helicopter parenting, where we, uh, you know, we want to plan everything out as if we have uh, the kids are going to the park. All right, let me get the security detail organized and you know dispatched to to accompany them. That's a good way to raise kids who are unable to make decisions for themselves, unable to entertain themselves, unable to learn for themselves. I think that's the most important aspect. So I think she's got some good advice. Let the kids play. And by the way, this doesn't just refer to little kids. Now, My 13-year-old daughter had a bunch of her friends, uh, well, a couple of her friends, come and uh, stay with her yesterday. And it was one of the coldest days that we've had so far this winter. I don't think we got above 15 degrees for a daytime high. The wind chill made it feel like it was in single digits nevertheless it was a beautiful day there was you know almost a foot of fresh snow out there in our yard and uh, these girls to their credit put on warm clothes we keep a good supply of you know snow play clothes and they went out there and spent a couple of hours playing in the snow They built, uh, I I thought they were building some kind of an igloo or something like that. I looked out there and, hey, there's clearly a structure. Maybe it's a snowball fort or whatever. They had five-gallon buckets we were packing snow. You know what they ended up creating? They created a couch out of snow. I was like, you guys make a recliner. I'll come out there and I will relax. I'll put on my warm weather gear and come out there with you. But the point is, They could have been sitting at home in front of Netflix or whatever, just, you know, endlessly watching the tube and being passively educated. But instead, they were out there having the time of their life. They were building something. They were learning from the experience. This is what works. This is what doesn't. The family dog was out there having a great time as well. And uh, it was really a good experience for everybody involved. And look, it was cold, too. Did I mention that? It was really cold. Like, cold enough that I was looking for any excuse not to go outside. But they went out there and had so much fun that you would uh, you would think, you know, the temperature had nothing to do with it. And actually, I think that's a good thing. Willing to suffer a little bit of discomfort for the chance to get out there and enjoy themselves and... You know, since uh, one of one of my daughter's friends is actually a friend from from Utah who came up, and her parents dropped her off, and she's staying with us for the week. I mean, this is this is exciting stuff, an opportunity they they wouldn't have had otherwise. I'm probably overthinking this, but I kind of miss the days <laughs> when when I was uh, too young to realize, hey, it's really cold out here. I mean, they came in and they were like, okay, I can't feel my fingers, I can't feel my toes anymore. You know, we had hot chocolate waiting the whole nine yards. I miss those days. I become pretty good at, uh, you know, maintaining comfort. You know, if I go outside, I'm not going to come in with frozen fingers and toes. At least I'm going to try not to. But I get this sneaking suspicion I might be missing out on something by taking that approach. Going out and suffering the cold or in the summer, suffering the bugs and the heat There's something that happens when we allow ourselves to suffer in the name of uh, also having some enjoyment. Maybe that's something I'm going to have to revisit for the coming year. At any rate, I've got a link to Lenore Skenazy's article from intellectualtakeout.org. It's in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Consider subscribing. I'll send you my show notes every day that I do the show. A lot of great reading if you want to dig a little bit deeper into any of these topics.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show.
1: Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. This program exists to persuade you that it is better for everybody involved. If we each think more clearly and independently about the world around us to that end, you will not find me spending an inordinate amount of time talking about politics and personalities or trying to sensationalize the news in a way that uh, creates fear or anger. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm just going to sit here and talk about lollipops and kittens and puppies and things that are very safe and and uh, easy to uh, to handle. We face a lot of hard facts, but. It's the idea that we can face these facts, make our own decisions, and move forward without being dependent on someone else to tell us what it all means. That's what it means to be a wrong thinker in these days. And yes, it will catch you some criticism. So, you know, if you've never suffered for your beliefs, hang on to your hats. You know, that's that's something that's just not possible today. You can't stand for something without paying a price for standing for it. But if you're okay with that, come. Pull up a chair. Find courage and camaraderie with your fellow wrong thinkers. And by the way, give some love to my sponsors. I've got them listed there on the show notes page. Uh, Just if you don't need what they are offering at this moment, maybe you know somebody who does, feel free to refer them. Or drop a line to them and let them know that their advertising message is reaching your ears. So I found a really interesting article here from Jeff Minnick, Three Steps Towards Raising Tough Kids. And it's it's funny cuz I I was just having this discussion with a friend yesterday um who was telling me a little bit about his childhood growing up on a farm in Idaho and um he had a kind of a rough situation and I think it, a lot of it had to do with um you know there there were some parenting issues and basically his parents were tough on him starting from about 9 years old he says I was uh, pretty much slave labor And it just, it was, it really surprised me to learn his social security record goes back to where he was nine years old because he was actually earning, I don't know what it was, 12 or uh, 20 cents a pipe, moving pipe out in in the fields. Now, this is not to say, therefore, he is a victim and we should all sit around and feel sorry for him. He's a very capable, can-do, hardworking guy, very productive member of society, but he had to be a tough kid in order to to survive and thrive under those conditions and the world is very different from the one that he and i grew up in at least in the way that people approach kids we're you know we're we're looking at uh, some some really strange shifts we'll get into some of those in a few moments but here's what jeff minnick has to say he says even if they wanted to do so 75% of young americans or young people can't join the ranks of the armed services. The prevalence of obesity, poor education, and criminal records made only 25% of young Americans qualified for military service. That's according to 2017 Pentagon data. Now, these dismal statistics are bad news, not only for our national security, but also for the future of our workforce, for the health of the American family, and for the young themselves. The trials facing our country, inflation, a government grasping for more and more power and out-of-control national debt, a culture that often seems crazier than Uncle Billy Bob when he bought a yacht for his front yard in Iowa, aren't going away anytime soon. And he says people, young people, will need to be tough if they are to survive and thrive in this mess. So he says, I addressed the need for us to raise tough kids in a recent article for Intellectual Takeout. After doing so, a friend asked me, how do we do that? Now, the answer may surprise you, but Jeff Minnick says, an answer to that question lies in the Boy Scout oath, where each scout promises to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. And here he unpacks each one of those concepts a bit. Physically strong. Jeff Minnick says, in my neighborhood, children rarely play outside. Sometimes I do spot middle schoolers walking home from the bus stop, but nearly all of them are absorbed in their cell phones. To make strong kids, we can oversee the foods they eat, making a trip to McDonald's a rare treat rather than a staple of their diet. We can also put limits on their screen time. He says just as importantly, we can encourage them to play sports and backyard games, to ride bikes, hike, and to take part in all those physical entertainments that were once a part of childhood. Now, some of these activities not only make for stronger muscles, but also teach discipline and the value of practice. The boy who earns his orange belt in karate and the high school ballerina dancing at a local performance of the Nutcracker have both added to their store of positive life lessons. Next, he talks about being mentally awake. Most parents want their children to perform well in school learning the math, reading, and writing skills that will enable them to pursue degrees and careers. But being mentally awake has ramifications beyond the classroom. It means possessing the acumen to separate truth from from falsehood and to sift out facts from opinions. Being mentally awake is a vital tool of resistance in a culture that demands lockstep conformity. Minnick says we can help our children develop these talents through kitchen table discussions of history, contemporary culture, and current events. We can teach them to identify the prejudices of our time, which so many people accept as givens, and to turn these over as if under a jeweler's glass to discern their validity. We can also teach them the now forgotten virtue of disinterestedness. That's the deliberate attempt to evaluate some difficult problem or question with as little prejudice as possible. He says we need more adults who can think in this way. And we can make sure our children are among them one day by cultivating their minds right now. This brings us to being morally straight. Our not-too-distant ancestors once learned the values of courage, temperance, wisdom, and character from their parents, from such texts as McGuffey readers, and arts, churches, and communities. But he says, in our age of relativism and self-esteem, instruction in the classic virtues has almost disappeared from our schools. Fewer Americans are attending church. The values of our culture seem divisive and in disarray, and only a handful of our present-day leaders and celebrities model moral probity. So what to do? Well, here again, he says, to help our kids absorb the virtues, it's up to us as parents and mentors to teach them by our words and our deeds that character counts. Now, when they're very young, we can fill their heads with fairy tales and Aesop's fables and stories of heroes ranging from the ancients to our American ancestors. When they step from the right path, we can guide them back, and later, when they're older, we can hold them responsible for their actions. Household chores and summer jobs can also help make children into stronger adults, introducing them to positive character traits like hard work and responsibility. So he says, many parents are already teaching their children such values. They understand the task is endless, that they must repeat lessons a thousand times to teach their children. A small example, he says, a couple of moms I know, when their children answer a question with, yeah, instantly correct them with, yes, mama. So the old Roman adage, repetitio, let me see if I can get this right, repetitio est mater studorium. Repetition is the mother of learning. And Jeff Minnick says it's also the mother of character development. You know, I admit, I haven't been particularly kind to the Boy Scouts over the last few years. And I think part of that has has stemmed from the frustration of watching the Boy Scouts be co-opted into a... uh, well, I don't know, a social laboratory of sorts. Um, it's it's a shame to see what's happened to them. And yet at the same time, I'm sure for some people, but Brian, they're more inclusive. Now there's girls than the Boy Scouts. And, you know, that's that's a good thing. And maybe it is. So I don't want to rain on anybody's parade. But the tested values of being physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight... I think they're as important now as they ever have been. And I would hope that if you have kids in your life, these are values that you're trying to impart to them as well. Not so much by lecturing them, you know, sit down, come sit at my my chair while I dispense this fatherly and grandfatherly advice, but through your actions, you know, do your kids see you when... If you see somebody stuck in the snow, do you just drive on by? Well, it's not my problem. Or do you show them that, hey... We need to see if there's something we can do to help. You may not think little things like this add up, but they do. The kids are watching. They see you do the right thing. You find somebody's wallet, you know, laying in the parking lot, and you immediately take it and and return it. That speaks volumes to them. When they're faced with that situation later in life, they have the pattern there to know what is the right thing to do as opposed to, well, let's see what's in it. (laughs) Hey, let's go shopping. All right. I'll have a link to Minix article in the show notes. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this.
0: This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I want to take just a moment here to tell you about Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George. They actually have a website, sewingquiltingcenter.com. You want to talk about a success story. This is a business that was started back in 1984 by Ken Harker. It's only changed owners twice. The current owner is Teresa Alsop, along with her husband, Eric Alsop. And Ken Harker, by the way, is still there fixing sewing machines. They carry brother sewing and embroidery machines, baby lock sergers, embroidering sewing machines, handy quilter, long arm quilting machines. Yep. Authorized dealer. They can provide service for all of these machines. They can even train you how to use a machine for yourself. And if you're like me, and okay, I, I don't do much with sewing, but I have a wife who does... I have a mom who's way into quilting. These are huge, huge. Um, I don't know what to call it. I want to say an industry. It's 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 a huge segment of society that that does this kind of work. And I think it's actually something that could be very very valuable. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, prices keep going up. Inflation is well underway, despite you know all the assurances. Oh, it's just transitory. It's not going to be with us. But if you had to. Either repair or maintain or, for that matter, you know, make your own clothing. Could you do it? Your own blankets and so forth? Sure would be nice to have some options. And, of course, uh, Sewing Quilting Center also sells fabric, thread, you know, the cuddle material that's uh, comparable to the minky stuff. Anyway, it's all there in one place, 779 South Bluff Street in St. George, or go to their website. These are folks I think you'll find have a lot to offer you. And uh, something you may want to delve into a little bit more deeply. So did the president just inadvertently end the pandemic? I'm actually hearing a lot of talk about this right now. And that's a question that's asked by Graham Dockery in an article that, by that title. Did the president end the pandemic? Um, I don't know if you caught this, but in a, in a conference call with governors last week, the president admitted Actually, I guess it was this week. Uh, The president admitted that there is no federal solution. Here's what Graham Dockery says. He says, no, he didn't make good on his campaign promise to shut down the virus. But by seemingly admitting defeat against COVID-19, Biden has opened a clear path to ending onerous pandemic restrictions and returning to normality. Now, President Biden admitted, I guess it was Monday, there is no federal solution to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, the statement paves the way for his mandates to be scrapped, but um, Graham warns, don't expect liberals to go along willingly. Speaking during a teleconference conference with governors, Biden followed this statement up by declaring that the pandemic gets solved at the state level. Before shuffling onto a helicopter and departing for his home state of Delaware. Now, delegating responsibilities to the state's was essentially the approach of Donald Trump. And a return to this policy represents a complete reversal of Biden's campaign trail promise to use the might of the federal government to shut down the virus. Talk about an overblown promise, if there ever was one. But far from shutting down the deadly pathogen, Biden has presided over more COVID-19 deaths than his predecessor and a current daily caseload higher than at any point since his inauguration. Now, of course, Biden's going to be hammered for this failure by Republicans, but it's as much a triumph of nature as it is a failure of government. The Omicron variant driving the latest surge in cases is highly transmissible, and early studies suggest that vaccines may be ineffective at stopping its spread. Likewise, Areas of the country with strict masking and vaccine passport requirements are experiencing unprecedented surges in transmission. Oh, what a shame. All that brutality and no return on investment. I hope people are watching. I hope they're paying attention. Against the bureaucracy, Omicron is winning. And Biden's not the only high-level Democrat seemingly throwing in the towel. Asked by a reporter on Monday whether he'd reintroduce a mask mandate to curb the spike... Connecticut government, Governor Ned Lamont, who owns whose own fully vaccinated Christmas party has been branded a super spreader event, replied, well, it's not curbing the spike down in New York City. Meanwhile, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shortened its recommended quarantine time for people with COVID-19 from 10 days to five days likely in a bid to save the economy from being ground to a halt by employees taking sick leave en masse as they come down with mild Omicron infections. Now, all of this signals a shift from containment to fatalism. In other words, accepting that COVID-19 cannot be stopped, stamped out and instead must be lived with. Many, particularly those on the right, have argued this from the outset. And other countries have grasped its reality already. South Africa, where Omicron was first reported, has stopped tracing and quarantining the contacts of COVID-19 cases. And now recommends that only those with symptoms be, temp- be tested rather and managed according to the severity of the condition. This is a big shift. And the article says Biden's words on Monday were just words. Now his his administration's onerous vaccine and mask mandates remain in place yet these words may have spelled the end for the mandates keep in mind the Supreme Court next month will hear challenges to two of these vaccine mandates one affecting healthcare workers another potentially affecting some 80 million private sector workers and it will likely be difficult for the federal government to make the case for compulsory vaccination when the head of the government has just admitted that solving the pandemic isn't the government's responsibility. Should the mandates be stricken down, and there's every reason to believe they will be, those rulings would open the floodgates to further legal challenges. Biden's masking requirement in federal buildings, along with similar rules for planes, trains, and buses, could all be scrapped, as could vaccine requirements for federal workers and contractors. Now, of course, Biden's already trying to flex a little bit here and say, well, you know, we could require masks in order to travel on planes. They don't want to let that power go easily. Yet the article says it's foolish to believe that the restrictions would be lifted nationwide overnight. Already, COVID policies vary drastically between red and blue states. The pandemic has essentially been over in Florida for a year or more with no masking or vaccine requirements in place on a state level and with a governor, Ron DeSantis, fighting tooth and nail against federal mandates. New York, by contrast, is still gripped by pandemic fever and even children have to show vaccine passes to eat indoors. There's a link in this article to police harassing a young boy and mother because they don't have vaccine cards. They're 86ing them from a restaurant. Just following orders. Okay, keep those those words in mind. We've heard them before. It was not a good outcome. So if Biden's mandates are lifted, blue state liberals would beg their governors to fill the void. In other words, to keep those mandates going. Even a cursory look at online reactions to Biden's statement on Monday reveals a whole swath of Democratic voters who are in no way ready to move past the pandemic. Why do you suppose that is? Personally, I think it's because they recognize that pandemic and the fear associated with it are the keys to power. That's the cheat code. We don't have to observe any limitations on government. All we have to say is public health emergency and we can do whatever we want. You have to do whatever we tell you. So it could be very interesting to see. You know that uh, you could see Americans relocating to states more suited to their lifestyles. We've already seen New York, California, and Illinois watching more and more of their population move away while Florida, Texas, and Arizona are seeing the most growth. Among other factors, the U.S. Census Bureau attributes all the blue loss and red gain to domestic migration. But much of this speculation and hinges on an is Im- uh, speculation rather and it hinges on an imminent court decision as well as the assumption that the omicron variant will remain a mild one but the bottom line is should all this come to pass should states start to chart their own vastly different courses on covid-19 biden can wave goodbye to another one of his campaign promises which was that pledge to quote unify and heal america i think you're going to see some real separation, sifting, you know, into these blue and red states
0: based on who allows freedom and who doesn't. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Now, I don't know. I, you know, I can't say for sure whether or not uh, the topics already covered thus far in the program have made anyone uncomfortable. I'm sure the possibility is there, but I'm going to make a guarantee to you. This next topic is going to make people really uncomfortable. And, And it's not that I'm out here to, you know, to try to make you feel bad about something. But here is a topic that I think needs some deeper examination. It's an article from Tom Mullen making a strong case for why the Pledge of Allegiance is un-American, even if the words seem patriotic. And I know this is something that most of us grew up with, and you know, it's uh, most public meetings start with the pledge, and you know, sometimes even uh, even non you know governmental meetings start with a pledge and a prayer, and it's it's a part of our uh, you know societal fabric. But I would ask you to consider how many people really consider what they are saying, what the words mean. I mean, we all say it in rote. It's very robotic the way most people do it. And do we even know where this pledge came from? You know, this wasn't the product of the founding generation. Tom Molin says, an Atlanta, Georgia charter school announced last week its intention to discontinue the practice of having students stand and recite the Pledge of Allegiance during its school-wide morning meetings at the beginning of each school day, opting to allow students to recite the pledge in their classrooms instead. And predictably, conservatives were immediately triggered by this anti-American decision, prompting the school to reverse its decision shortly thereafter. This article, by the way, was published back in 2018. So this is not recent news, but it's still an issue. Now, Tom molin says the uproar over periodic resistance to reciting the pledge typically originates with Constitution-waving Tea Party conservatives. Now, ironically, the pledge itself is not only un-American, but antithetical to the most important principle underpinning the Constitution as originally ratified. Admittedly, the superficial criticism that no independent, free-thinking individual would pledge allegiance to a flag isn't the strongest argument. Although the precise words of the pledge are, and to the republic for which it stands. So, taking the pledge at its word, one is pledging allegiance both to the flag and the republic. But let's face it, standing and pledging allegiance to anything is a little creepy. But then again, it was written by a socialist. But why nitpick? It's really what comes next that contradicts both the the republic's founding documents, One nation, indivisible, is the precise opposite of the spirit of both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And by the way, the words under God wasn't added till the 1950s. The government in Washington, D.C. is called the federal government. Now, a federal government governs a federation, not a nation. And the one persistent point of contention throughout the Constitutional Convention of 1787 and its ratifying conventions which followed was the fear of a government created by the Constitution would becoming a, becoming a national government rather than a federal one. Both the, both the Federalist Papers and the Bill of Rights were written primarily to address this concern of the people of New York and the states in general, respectively. Moreover, the whole reason for delegating specific powers to the federal government and reserving the rest to the states or the people was to ensure there would not be one nation but rather a federation of self-governing republics which delegated a few powers to the federal government and otherwise reserved the rest for themselves. By the way, the Bill of Rights as originally written, applied only to the federal government and not to the states. Tom Mullen says, Sorry, liberals, but the First Amendment doesn't guarantee a separation of church and state within the states. It was written for the opposite reason, to protect the existing state religions of the time from the federal government establishing a a national one and thereby invalidating them. And sorry, conservatives, the Second Amendment wasn't written to keep states from banning guns. Quite the opposite. It was written to reserve the power to ban guns to the states. That's why most states, even those established after the Bill of Rights was ratified, have clauses in their own constitutions protecting the right to keep and bear arms. They understood that the Second Amendment applied only to the federal government, not the states. So if there's one thing that's clear from all of the above, the Constitution did not establish one nation. In fact, the states only agreed to ratify it after being repeatedly promised the United States would be no such thing, allowing the states to govern themselves in radically different ways at their discretion. Then there's that word indivisible. Now, one would think a federation born by its constituent states seceding from the nation to which they formerly belonged would make the point obvious enough. But the Declaration makes it explicit that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now, Tom Mullen says it would be impossible to exercise that right, that duty, as the Declaration later calls it, if the Republic were indivisible. The strictest constructionists of the time didn't consider the nation indivisible. Thomas Jefferson didn't threaten to send troops to New England when some of its states considered seceding upon his election. Quite the opposite. And in an 1804 letter to Joseph Priestley, he deemed a potential split in the Union between Atlantic and Mississippi confederacies not only possible, but not very important to the happiness of either part. So the people advocating one nation indivisible in those days were big government federalists like Hamilton, whose proposals to remake the United States into precisely that were flatly rejected in 1787. I think the best term I've heard for Hamilton and those who followed that line of thought were the consolidationists. They wanted to consolidate power. And boy, have we seen that happen. Just as the anti-federalists warned would happen. Now, Tom Mullen says proponents of absolute national rule like to quip that this question was settled by the American Civil War. Yes, that's like saying Polish independence was settled by Germany and the Soviet Union in 1939. In fact, it is precisely the trend toward one nation that has caused American politics to become so rancorous to the point of boiling over into violence over the course of the last several decades. This continent is inhabited by a multitude of very different cultures, which can coexist peacefully if left to govern themselves. But as the federal government increasingly seeks to impose a one-size-fits-all legal framework over people who never agreed to give it that power, the resistance is going to get more and more strident. If there's any chance to achieve peace among America's warring factions, Tom Mullen says a return to a more truly federal system is likely the only way. And keep in mind, he wrote these words more than three years ago. Getting rid of the un-American pledge... To the imaginary nation, that indivisible imaginary nation, would be a good symbolic start. Now, I'll grant you, this is probably making some people feel a little bit hot under the collar. Do you feel your blood pressure starting to creep up? I don't blame you. But I'm going to ask you, just take the time to ask yourself, why am I reacting this way? Why does this hit, you know, in such a way that I feel offended when someone suggests maybe the Pledge of Allegiance really isn't that great of an idea and certainly shouldn't be mandatory? A few years ago, a good friend of mine um, who who has raised his kids right had a, had a son who was attending a charter school and the Pledge of Allegiance was a normal part of their, you know, school day. Well, his son did his own research on the pledge, learned about Francis Bellamy, learned about, you know, the socialist leanings and the socialist goal of, you know, these kids need to be reminded of their place and they need to be reminded of, of uh, their uh, fealty to government and their, their obligation to believe and to support and give allegiance to government. And upon understanding this, his son said, I'm not going to participate in the pledge. So while other members of his class would stand and recite the pledge every day, he would quietly sit. Okay? He wasn't trying to prevent them from participating. He just conscientiously objected to taking part in it himself. And the reactions, the anger that was, I mean, people, students wrote him notes. You're spitting in the face of every person who ever died for our flag when you refuse to pledge your allegiance to it. And he actually had one teacher who said, you get on your feet or I'm going to yank you out of that chair. Yes, threatening violence against a student. It took a little bit of time to get the waters calmed down, but look, this wasn't a kid out there to get attention. I know that was one of the first things a lot of people accuse you. Well, he's just a kid looking for attention. Are you sure of that? Or is it possible that a kid, a teenager, actually studied something out for himself and came to the conclusion that this isn't something that I would willingly give my support to? And so he took the, you know, least intrusive method of abstaining from joining in that patriotic ritual. Still doesn't explain the need for people to get violent and angry and insist that, you know, you have to do this or else the nation will crumble. Come on, are we really that fragile? I don't think so.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back.
1: I think one of the most disturbing stories that I have heard in the last uh, week or so has to do with parents who are being prosecuted because they have shown up at school board meetings and either loudly or even politely registered their displeasure with uh, the folks who are currently calling the shots at those school board meetings. It's it's really something, and most of the time it's it's turning out that uh, these trespassing charges are being issued after the fact. It's not like hey, they were told to leave and they you know refused to do so. But there's a very definite divide, and a clear line being drawn between parents and government school bureaucrats. And there are a couple of questions which come to mind that I think need a little closer look. The first one is just what exactly is Education. I've got a great article I'm linking to from American Thinker. This is by Christopher Cantrell, or Chantrell, rather. And I'm just going to give a couple of excerpts here, because there's a second question I want to follow up with. Christopher Chantrill says, Last week I wrote a nice moderate blog post on education that included a roster of all the brilliant minds that have held forth on education, from Aristotle to Mr. Common School Horace Mann to our own beloved Bill Gates. The very next day, Curtis Yarvin wrote a similarly moderate post on his Gray Mirror substack about retiring the university. He said, "To a substantial extent, America is the university. A nation is its government, and America's government is its university system." Sorry if this comes as news to you. So, Christopher Chantrell says, "If we're going to have regime change, according to uh, according to Curtis Curtis Yarvin." The university is the old regime and it's got to go. Then he disappears into the weeds on the details of how to do this. Now, in in this case, uh, Christopher Chantrell says, In my moderate post on education, I proposed a new constitutional amendment. That the U.S. should pass an amendment forbidding the federal government to fund or legislate about universities. Now, that's all very well, but what about the text of the constitutional amendment? How about this? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of education or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of education or of the Internet or the right of the people to peaceably misinform and to petition the government for a redress of government disinformation. Ain't I a stinker? (laughs) Now, he says, given the violent justice of the deep state and universities generally and unionized teachers in particular, He says, I think my proposed education amendment is the most moderate thing in world history, and I expect you'll agree with me. But he says, in our struggle for justice in education, what do we do? Well, how about this? A tablets for kids project that dropped off preloaded tablets in a couple of villages in Ethiopia in early 2012 where the kids had never previously seen printed materials. Here's how it turned out. Within four minutes, one kid not only opened the box, found the on-off switch, and powered it up. Within five days, they were using 47 apps per child per day. Within two weeks, they were singing ABC songs in the village, and within five months, they had hacked Android. Hacked Android? Well, the had, or the activists rather, had disabled the tablet camera, so the kids figured out how to turn them back on. Now, he says, I dare say the instructions for hacking Android were in English. So that means the kids. Yeah, think about it. Senator, I have a question. Just why are we sending all of our children in, uh, to labor in government school custodial facilities or schools uh, throughout their childhood? Just why is it that we ban banned children from working for money and anathematized it as child labor? And just what is it that's so vitally important that kids can only get it from school apart from getting the noble and progressive regime narrative? Well, he says back in the day, in 1913, why children work? Schools inspector Helen Todd found that working children preferred to work rather than go to school. See, the kids reported their employers treated them much better than the teachers at school. And that hasn't changed. Here's James Tooley in 2000, reclaiming education, describing how children respond to work experience. Quote: Many teachers who visited students on the jo- on job placements remarked how their pupils matured in the experience becoming more adult in a short period of time. So what do we do? Well, he says, I propose that the standard model of childhood education should be neighborhood mothers getting together to educate their children with tablets. And mothers that don't get with the program should be named and shamed and shunned by the other mothers. I'm pretty sure that's tongue-in-cheek, but you see his point. Suppose your kid gets damaged by the school. Suppose it's mostly a waste of time. Suppose your kid gets traumatized by the bullies or the lowlifes at school. Suppose she gets indoctrinated into ruling class propaganda to make her a hopeless snowflake. Suppose she gets out of college with a useless gender studies degree and then works up ending as a barista at Starbucks. He says, well, I would say then that you are not a good mother, but what the Jungians called the terrible mother. The one so frequently found in Grimm's fairy tales. Interesting take. Not everybody's going to agree with it, but it's a a good exploration of just what is education for? What's it supposed to accomplish? Now, here's the other thing that I wanted to share with you, and that is, is there a plot to push parents out of education? This is from Connor Boyack from Libertas Institute, and he says, chances are you've already heard about the 1619 Project. If not, here's a brief refresher. Created by Nicole Hannah-Jones, an activist and New York Times columnist, The project is a series of essays aiming to reframe America through the lens of race. And with the help of the media and academic elite, it's a concerted effort to reframe capitalism as evil, freedom as malicious, and skin tone as a foolproof indicator of one's place on on the oppressed-slash-oppressor spectrum. As you know, it's already creeping into the classrooms in the form of critical race theory. So this past Sunday, as millions gathered to celebrate the holidays with loved ones, Hannah Jones made an appearance on NBC's Meet the Press. As the interview turned to education, the recent Virginia governor's race was brought up by host Chuck Todd. He and Hannah Jones discussed Terry McAuliffe's infamous blunder in which he claimed, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Now, that insane statement is widely considered to have cost McAuliffe the election, but Hannah Jones minced no words in backing him up. That's just the fact, she said. Now, Connor says, first of all, none of this is surprising at all. It's hardly a shock to hear left-wing voices claim that moms and dads have no say in what their own children are taught. But he says would be pretty stupid not to take McAuliffe, Hannah Jones, and the forces behind them, the teachers' unions, the federal government, and the media, to name a few, seriously. I mean, they're literally giving us their game plan, control the content taught in schools, take away parents' rights, and inject anti-freedom rhetoric and race obsession into classrooms without a hitch. Now, the other crucial element at play is an ongoing battle to lock students within the public school system. Look to states like California, Oregon, New York, and Massachusetts. The hatred for solutions like school choice and homeschooling is palpable. Look to figures like Hannah Jones, and it's obvious why. Unfortunately, our educational establishment wants nothing more than to take bright young minds like our children and turn them into ideal citizens, woke, compliant, never asking the wrong questions. He says, if you're as appalled as I am by the modern movement to strip families of their autonomy, you don't have to resign yourself to cynical hopelessness. Powerful forces may be vying for the minds of your children, but they haven't won yet. No matter your family's situation, you have the power to take control of how your children learn about the world around them. So whether you're ready to take the plunge into homeschooling, switching to a private or charter school, or just want to supplement your children's education with some real world truth. Well he says that's why his Tuttle Team series Tuttle Twins series team is there to help you. Whether you're raising toddlers or teenagers, He says we can help with our books on personal responsibility, economics, civics, and much more. Each title is written with the purpose of empowering you, the parent, to teach your child the ideas that matter. And together, he says, parents like us can put a stop to this insanity and prevent the next generation from falling for the left's false promises. If you're as fed up as I am with the educational status quo, he says, join me. And let's fight to raise leaders, free thinkers, and status quo questioners. That probably sounds a lot like, well, Brian, you just did a nice uh, commercial there for uh, the Tuttle Twins. Yes, actually, I did, didn't I? That's not a paid commercial, by the way. Um, But I've worked with Connor. I've seen the, the work that goes into his creation of this series. I think this is a very significant tool for parents who want to make sure that, uh, that those young minds are taught correct principles early on so they don't have to be retaught or re-educated or, you know, have falsehoods sifted out later on as adults. And it's harder for us to change our minds as adults, right? We understand this. Look at how we cling to things that we learned as kids and oh, I just can't think of this any other way. Things become habit. So there's a link. You can check it out for yourself you want to learn more about the Tuttle Twins. Very worthwhile tools and extremely principled in how they approach these subjects. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers.
0: Feel free to hit the subscribe button. This is The Brian Hyde Show.